are in it. Actually, that is just the first of three, two, three total chapters of the Golden Calf Incident. You might destroy me if we go through, if we read all three chapters here at once or tried to run through all that. I've been watching my time going, whew, I'm getting a little, a little toasty with my sermon length for you guys. But the Golden Calf Incident is one we didn't want to miss. Now, for those of you who listen to our little daily podcast, we have a podcast Monday through Friday, and they're just brief episodes, five to ten minutes. Uh, what I'm going to do is actually, for a part of this week, go through and talk about other aspects of this passage that didn't get into the sermon. Sermon prep is something always gets left on the cutting room floor. Like when I preach a sermon, I never preach 100% of what I want to preach. That might surprise you when you look at like, well, is he going to finish? Um, but I wanted to walk through some other aspects of chapter 33 and 34 and other things that you see in these three chapters. And I'll be doing that this week in those episodes for us so we can hear other parts that we might have not heard today. Because today I want to talk specifically about this issue that is so prevalent in our lives of idolatry. Idolatry. Other aspects of this passage, such as you read about Moses' relationship with God or his glowing face that comes at the end, where Moses has a glowing face when he interacts with the Lord and the people see it and they're a little shocked by it, right? But there's actually New Testament references back to what that moment was like. Or there's this statement that we'll read about God visiting to the third and fourth generations for sin, which sounds a little different than maybe you and I might generally think about how sin works, right? Like, I'm punished for my sin, I'm not punished for your sin, so what does that generational thing have to do? But those will all come. I want to look at Exodus 32 and the issue of idolatry, and we're going to start like this, because if you are ever in the Guger household from about late August to December, uh, you will find me or my children watching college football. It's just going to happen. We were on a bike ride, I think, yesterday, and somebody was like, I really love college football is my favorite season, which isn't a season, right? Like, you know, winter, spring, summer, fall, but like we don't have like the rainy season or the dry season. We have like football season, and that's kind of it. Like, it's a 12-month-a-year season. You just kind of always follow the news. And so we, right, when you have a season, now I'm not talking specifically about like what we feel in climate. When you have a season, what do you start to do? But you orient your habits around it. Right, So you, you, you change the clothes that you wear. You schedule different types of activities. You go, oh, I love the fall because it cools off and we can go out and camp. Or I love the spring because I love things that begin to blossom and we can see certain things. I, I, we always have those. I love winter because it gets to like 60 degrees in Texas and it's great. All the things that we do, we orient our lives around seasons. But very often the way that we orient our lives... If we're not careful, we might realize that there are things that we love and care about that actually can dictate way more of our schedule than we think. And if we're not careful, we're crossing that line of idolatry. We're actually now creating schedules and habits and ways to live and ways to think and ways to even feel that we don't generally feel unless the thing is providing what, it, you know, what we want for it. So that was going on at our house. All of us. All of us have things that excite us. 
We do. Like, like, I, don't, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know if it's new music or a new movie or a new show or when family comes in town or whatever it might be. Like, there are always things that, that just excite us and get us like, I can't wait until this. Right? We always have that, I can't wait till, I can't wait till, I can't wait till that thing in the future that we're looking forward to. We all have those. But sometimes, aren't they the, the wrong thing? They were really passionate about the wrong thing. Remember if you read the, the Tim Keller book, I, Idols, he was a pastor in New York for a long time. He has this book on idols called Counterfeit Gods. And, and one, of the, one of the things he tells us about how can you determine if something might be an idol uh, is the, I, we've talked about this, like it's, it's the kind of the out of bounds or the unexpected emotional response to something. So somebody goes, hey, I think that maybe it would be better if you whatever. And you're like, how in the world can you tell me what to do? You're like, whoa, like you ever done that? You ever had a conversation with somebody? Or maybe you took something away from somebody or like you just, you didn't know, but something, you just kind of hit a raw nerve and all of a sudden, game over, right? Like, like you don't know what happened, right? It's that, it's that kind of just weird emotional response that we might give to something because we value it more than we should. That we don't have that, that type of balance with it. It's like all on or all off. We can't really figure it out. So what we're going to see in Exodus, and we're going to stay mainly in Exodus 32 for the passage that Courtney read. We're going to ask this question, of what stirs up our idolatry first? What stirs up our idolatry? And then ultimately, what is the solution? We're going to be using Exodus 32. Now, we were just kind of did two law sermons, Exodus 20 and then more of a theological sermon on the law. Now we're in Exodus 32, so we've gone pretty far into the book of Exodus now. So what's been going on is that Moses has been on the mountain receiving instruction from the Lord. The people have been down at the bottom of the mountain waiting for that instruction, but he's taken a little too long, isn't he? That's actually what we get to Right away in this passage is when Moses took too long, when the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, that is his brother, and that's the priest, and said, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. So what is the, the, the impetus here? What is making this happen? Well, impatience is a big one. Impatience mixed with the human heart doesn't always go well. It just doesn't go well. And so they have, now think about this, they have been brought out of the land, they have been delivered by their God, they have been delivered from their enemies, they have been given the law, they've seen his thunder, they've seen his power, and now they're waiting. And they know where Moses is, and they know what's going on, but they are waiting. But it just takes a little too long. A little too long. And what happens when something takes longer than you think it should? You look for solutions. I mean, the same thing happened, and the same thing happened with Abraham. God gave Abraham a promise that he would have children. But Abraham became an old man, and he still had no children. So what happens? His wife says, take my servant in my household and have a child with her, and that'll, that'll be the promise. Right? Because waiting's hard. 
trusting that God will do what he said and, and we'll, we'll be there. It's hard. And so they have this run of time, 40 days, getting instruction. God's on the mountain with Moses. We don't know precisely everything that's been going on, but we know the instruction that's been given. And they're like, please, Aaron, make for us gods. Make for us gods. We don't know what's happened to Moses. And what are they doing already? They're kind of going back into the way of life and the worldview that existed around them. I mean, the Egyptians had tons of gods. Tons. And they were visible. They had idols. They had things you could see. Right? And they, they have a, a fire and a cloud, but they don't have any actual representation of God that they can see. And that's what they've known, the idolatry of the land that they came out of. So what are they doing? But they're trying to go right back to it. Give us something that we can see. We don't know what has happened to Moses. But the other thing about this is that right, there's impatience. Then there's, there, there, That's one thing, which is time. But it's really time times the human heart if we were making it an equation. And the scriptures say some things about human hearts that we have heard before. Let's go back to them though because growing impatient for a delay because of a delay really is silly. But Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, there's some elders from Israel who want to come speak to him and, and ask him to kind of go before the Lord. So in Ezekiel chapter 14, we read this. Then certain of the elders... Of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men, the elders, have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of the iniquity, of their iniquity, before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? So leaders of Israel coming to Ezekiel, the Lord speaks to Ezekiel and goes, These people are idol worshipers. I don't want to hear anything that they have to say. If you read Jeremiah with us in our reading plan, you read it like this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? He then goes on to say it's the Lord who can search the heart and who knows the heart. But when you have time in your heart, bad things happen. Bad things can happen because you just go, I don't know how to spend the time. I don't know what to do. Are we just waiting? Let's figure out something that we can do to kind of keep this thing moving along. And so... So they make idols. Now, Jesus gives us new hearts, doesn't he? In that meaning, through the new covenant, in the spirit, spirit of God comes. We have new hearts in Christ through faith in him. But even then, the temptation for idolatry is rampant to go after things that don't give us what we actually need. The epistle, 1 John, puts it this way. Little children, keep yourself from idols. That's how it ends. Keep yourself from idols. Such, an, such a great ending to a letter that is theologically dense. It really is. Like there, there's stuff about the assurance of salvation. There's stuff where you go, I don't really know what to do with that passage. But then you get to the end, you're like, oh, I know what to do with that. Look out for idols. The things that I love and want to pursue that I think are going to give me pleasure and joy and satisfaction. And they don't. So we have this, this kind of first movement in Exodus chapter 32 where the Israelites say, we don't know what has happened to Moses, so let's fashion a God and we'll use that. That's what happens. And so you see that exchange. Aaron goes, sure, let's melt down everything that you have. So they throw all this jewelry out and they melt it down. And as he says, it, out comes this calf. 
And it's almost like he's trying to remove himself from culpability there. Right? It's like, well, I didn't do it. I, oh, you know, it's like, like, like Adam in the garden. Well, the woman you gave to me, she did this. And that, right? it's, it, it, they're just trying to distance. He's trying to distance himself as Moses confronts him on what he has done. But then what does he say? They make these idols. And what does he say? But look, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And this is an interesting thing about idolatry that we can't miss, is that what we're really trying to do is shift where the need is met. Right? So here's God who brought you out of Egypt, who's delivered you, who's cared for you, who's given everything to you, and you go, that's great, I just want to see him. And so they make the calf. They make the calf. And then what does he ascribe to the calf but all the things that the true God has done? But we often do the same thing. You know, follow the money. What do we spend our money on? We go, I did this. I earned that. I bought that. I paid for that, right? All these things we start to do, where we go, man, God's really blessing me because I'm greedy and I like to have lots of money. Like, like we have these little ways where we kind of syncretistically combine our faith with the things that we know about God and try to marry these two worlds together. And I promise you, it does not go well. We're like, you can worship Jesus while being an idolater, can't you? I'm like, no, you, no, you can't. But that's what's trying to be done. And right Sunday after Sunday, don't we often come into churches and try and like establish ourselves as like holy people, like we're really awesome. But we know what we've been doing all week. Caring about other things. Loving other things. Giving attention to other things. Giving our minds to other things. Being excited about other things. We know what we've been doing. Time, the human heart, creates this deathly consequential mix. that then leads to, leads to Moses going before the Lord again and wanting to intercede. So what happens in this next movement, what happens in this next movement is that there's this Moses moment where the leader intercedes on behalf of the people. Now, you've heard it said before, like, Moses is a type of Christ, which means that, that what you see in Moses is similar to what you might see in the ministry of Jesus, but is not the same, right? That still Moses' ministry for the people of Israel and his relationship with God is similar to, but is not, what you see in the ministry and life of Jesus. That Jesus' ministry is superior. The book of Hebrews shows us this. But you see this moment of intercession, don't you? That happens in verse 11. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against these people? You've brought them out of the land of Egypt with great power, with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains or to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, or Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as stars of heaven. And all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord, what's that word? It relented. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And this is interesting. 
This is interesting because what you see, and I love this, is that God is interacting with Moses in a way Moses will be able to understand. Right? So God comes down, and is God angry? Yes. He is angry. But he's communicating it in a way that Moses goes, okay, I understand what you're talking about. Right? He's not communicating to us in this incomprehensible way. So he comes angry. And what does Moses do? Because Moses is in the moment, and he's thinking like somebody who's in this relationship. And he says, will you turn from your anger? And look what he does. He actually roots the reason in God's character and the things that God has said. He says, he says the Egyptians, essentially, are just going to mock us. They're going to go, well, they were delivered to die. And then also, verse 13, remember the promise you gave. Well, where have we been seeing this promise all throughout the book of Exodus? I mean, it begins, God remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembered his promise. He remembered what he said. And so what is Moses doing? But bringing God's word back to him. If you wipe the people out, there will not be a nation. And you promised there would be a nation. And you said it would be multiplied. And if we die now, there's no multiplying going on. And God relented. So what, did, what happened in that moment? But Moses interceding, but it was rooting itself in God's character. It was rooting itself in the way God operates. Which is such an important model for us in how we pray for people. If you run out of words to pray and things to say, right, you don't have to come up with them. You have the scriptures revealed by God, inspired by the Spirit. And so when you're running out of words, what can you use as your guide but the things that God has spoken? And it might be, like Moses, God, you said you would do this. You said you'd do this, so you, you, can't, you can't wipe us out. You said you would be faithful. You said you wouldn't leave. And so it's praying God's words back to him because that's the language that he can give us. The Psalms can help us with this. As we read the Psalms, we go, you know what, I can use this. I can pray this. I can use this language to communicate to God because it, it talks about how I'm feeling better than, than I know. It gives me language better than I know. So what do we have from God? But essentially in the scriptures, a guide even to pray. That Moses doesn't have to spitball. He just goes to the Lord and says, you said that you were going to bless these people and give them a land. So turn from your anger and don't wipe them out. Now we've seen this in our reading in Jeremiah where God, what does God do? God is so angry with the nation that he brings the Babylonians in. This is the southern kingdom, 586. Nebuchadnezzar's coming down. He wipes out the people, though there is a remnant, and he uses other nations as his, as his agents of judgment. But then you also see Jeremiah prophesying that he's going to wipe out the agents of judgment. I'm going to bring these nations in to judge you and bring the punishment for your disobedience, but I'm also going to get them because you're my people. What? You can just skip the middle part. Just wipe them out. 
right? But there's the covenant that they had broken, and there's the response, the punishment from that broken covenant, and then still these people are God's people. And he is going to ensure that they live in the land. And so it feels odd, but God is actually staying true to both words. He's staying true to the Mosaic Covenant. And if they don't obey, they will be punished. But also the promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that there would be a people. That he loves the nation. And so there's this intercession. But you know what? For us, Jesus is always interceding. Jesus is praying for us. He's interceding for us. That we don't have to have it all together. That we don't have to know all the words. That we don't have to be sure our prayers get just right. Because our prayers are not based on their necessary accuracy, but on the character of God who is faithful. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Think about this, that Jesus has an ongoing ministry of intercession for his people. That there's always that ministry going on in the heavenlies for God's people. So Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, but Jesus is our better intercessor. The way he prays, what he knows, his knowledge of us, and his perfection. Jesus intercedes. Now, we have this idolatry moment. Moses is angry. God is angry. Moses intercedes. But then there is the disobedience and the punishment that comes and there are a people that God uses to bring this punishment. They are the Levites. So the Levites show up and what do we have? Verse 26. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around. Remember, the Levites were the priestly people. They were the ones who ministered on behalf of the nation. And they're actually the ones we'll see next week who encamped around the tabernacle so that the fury of the Lord would not get to the nation that is then camped around the Levites. So you have the tabernacle, you have a construction of Levites around the tabernacle, and then you have the nations arranged around that. The Levites are ministers on behalf of the people to God. And the Levites stand up, they're on the Lord's side, And this was their challenge. Thus says the Lord God, put your sword on your side, each of you. Go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. 
And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that you might bestow a blessing, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Hmm. Hmm. So we have the Levites who stand, and they were given an incredibly difficult task to punish those who rebelled. That they were God's instrument, instruments of judgment in that moment. So, now we have this issue with the Levites. What do you do when you have a Levite like this who is, like, one of their major tasks is to destroy their own people? Hmm, that doesn't make a ton of sense, does it? But what do we have? I want us to remember this. I want us to remember this. And I want us to pray to the Lord for for this type of conviction and this type of resolve. That even in the midst of idolatry, there are those who stand. Who is on the Lord's side? And the Levites stand. And in obedience to what God has spoken, they enact a difficult judgment. Now, I don't think that you today are going to have some moment where you are going to wipe out somebody you love. I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing. Because what do we have here also as the Lord is establishing this nation, but a swift reminder that idolatry... Right? That's the first commandment. You have no other gods before me. And second, don't make yourself a graven image. Like the, the, You can't break these and assume that you're going to get away with it. You can't, you can't the, the things I've said, which are about how the nation relates to him, you can't break these and then be okay with it. God is holy and he cannot be crossed. In fact, we see a similar thing in the New Testament, which is a little spooky, isn't it? In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lie about the money that they bring before the apostles. They essentially, if you don't know the story, these people, they're a part of a church, they have some land, and everybody's selling property, and they're giving it to the apostles, distribute to those who have need. And what they essentially say is, let's sell the land. The market's hot right now. Let's sell the land. Let's keep some of the money because we could use it, essentially. I'm sure let's have some of that money. Let's give the rest, which is incredibly generous, right? Like, let's give it. But let's tell them that we gave all of it. That's the issue. The issue is not that they didn't give all of it. The issue is that they lied. (laughs) Peter even says when he confronts them, it was yours. It was your property. No one told you to sell it. If it's sold, it's your money. No one's telling you to give it. But what happens? They die. They die. 
And it's interesting, this little analog we have, that, that, that as the Lord is establishing an expectation, establishing how his people are going to operate, that he wants you to be very sure that sin will be punished. That disobedience is, is punished. That there are consequences for how we live and how we act and how we walk. And so what I want to say in that is we need to recognize first, odds are we're in the camp of idolaters, not the camp of the Levites. If we were like, if we were, we would all probably self-select, oh, I'm a Levite, I'll definitely do that. But no, we're probably the ones who are like, I need a calf, here's my ring, like I don't need it, like take it, melt it down. Most of us would probably be in that camp. But one thing that we have is the Spirit of God in us. The Spirit of God is in every believer, and the Spirit of God is always on the Lord's side. So though weakened by the flesh, we can yield to the Spirit. Weakened by the flesh, we can yield to the Spirit and make that stand and speak of God's ways. Be men and women and children of integrity who walk before the Lord faithfully and who desire to honor him, who long to honor him. Now with this, we have another thing, right? Let's follow these movements. We have the idolatry that comes because it's taking too long. We have the intercession that comes and God says, he says, I'm not going to let you intercede, Moses. Or he's getting relents from his anger. Then we have the Levites, the punishment. Now there's this moment of what do you do with the sin? Got a little ahead of myself, but here we go. What do you do with the sin? Remember this. Anybody, remember this. Sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. Is my sin covered by Jesus, past, present, and future? Yes. But at this moment in time with this nation, now we have the problem of the, the idolaters died but the people have been stained. The people have been stained. They're impure, not walking right. This is what we have, though. Verse 30 of chapter 32. Moses is attempting something that, that doesn't work out. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord perhaps, love that language, perhaps, who knows, I can make atonement for you, which means I can make it right, I can cover over. Maybe I can talk to God and we can, we can work this thing out, right? Like, let me talk to your dad. I think we can keep him from being so mad at you. So Moses returned to the Lord and he said, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out from your book. Will you forgive them? Blot me out. He's essentially kind of trading. Like, like let, let me be wiped out too. These are my people. So he's asking God to bring atonement because of Moses' words. But listen to what the Lord says. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Why does he say that? Because sin is... Sin is an issue that is personal. Fallen Moses cannot atone for the fallen people in the nation. Moses cannot make it right. 
he can't make them right. Even when he tries and he says, blot me out. Just blot me out. These are my people, blot me out. The Lord says, I will blot out the people who have sinned against me. Well, again, let's just go back to what in, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is talking about his people, the nation of Israel. And he uses this language. He says, I wish I could be accursed so that they could be forgiven. But he also knows that he can't. He's speaking of God's sovereignty and God's ways and God's power. And you can't go to the Lord and, and trade. Well, God, I'll give you my salvation if you give it to someone else. That's not how that works. You're not in control of God's salvation. You're not in control of God's power and God's atonement and God's ways. You don't go to God and barter like that. You can't. Why? Because you're unclean too. You're unclean too. So my sacrifice of myself for you accomplishes nothing for your salvation. Nothing. I love you, I die for you, but me dying for you will not save you. It will not fix the problem that sin has caused. What do we need? Right? We see this. The Lord, even, the Lord won't let Moses atone for the people. And Moses isn't sure he can, right? He's like, let me see. Perhaps I can. Maybe there's some way we could make this work. Perhaps it'll work out. The Lord says, no. Now, locked into that time and that space, we might not know why the Lord would say that. But now that we know what Jesus has done, we recognize that God is being completely consistent. My sin and sinfulness which is a heart issue, cannot fix yours. Yours cannot fix mine. God covers the need for repayment. God covers it over. God makes it right. Even the sacrificial system, and we need to know this, that salvation always is dependent upon the work of Jesus. Even in the Old Testament... Before the Son of God is incarnate, the Lord is looking to that sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifices that happen within the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement that they have, they keep going back to year after year, those moments aren't saving because some animal. It's faith in God's character and God's ways. God provides the way. God covers the atonement. We don't go to God and go, well, what if I did it like this? That's like me when I used to get grounded and I'd go to my mom and I'd say, what could I do to get out of this? And she's pretty fallen too, right? So she would just give me a list and just go, okay, here are like the three things or the five things I need you to do. And if you do that, then you're good. Because it's way easier to have me not grounded than grounded. Because when I'm not grounded, I can go outside and I can, you know, do my stuff. The problem we have is that we're marred by sin. God has to fix it. God has to fix it. And in the person of Jesus, he does. We see this in a few ways. Romans 8.3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God sent his son into the world in order that the requirement, the righteous requirement, would be fulfilled. How's it fulfilled in us? Well, it's fulfilled for us, giving the Spirit. So so Christ's fulfillment is my fulfillment. Christ's covering over my sins is what is sufficient. So I can't make it right for you anymore that you can make it right for me. The Lord makes it right for us, and we have to go to him. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore... He had to be made like his brothers, this is speaking of the Lord, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, and here's a word for you, propitiation, like the satisfaction of God's anger, propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus had to become like us so that he could Allow for us forgiveness. Provide for us forgiveness. That he is the way. And I think of parents who might see their sons or their daughters not walking in the Lord and would love to give anything that they possibly could in order to see their children walking with the Lord, but you can't give them what the Lord must. Grandparents who are aching that their children are not walking with the Lord, or their grandkids aren't walking with the Lord, they're going, God, if I could do anything, if I could do anything, I would, but you know you can't. And it is only helpless if you don't go back to the Lord with that. Because the thing that you can do is continue to go to the Lord on behalf of those in your life that do not know him. When you see people in their sin and when you see them stuck, you can't fix it, but you can continue to ask the Lord to save. And what did we see Moses do? That second movement we have of his intercession, he's bringing God's words to him. And so how can you pray? Father, you sent your son into the world to die for everybody. Right? Whoever believes will not perish. And I pray, God, that my daughter would believe. That my neighbor would believe. That my dad would believe. Because you've provided the way for forgiveness. You've provided the way. Jesus is the one that makes atonement possible, not us. So we don't have to go to the Lord and barter. We just go to the Lord and say what he said. You said it. You save. You're powerful. You're forgiving. Be that. The lives of people who don't know you. Now, I'm cheating a little bit. I'm cheating because I want to go to chapter 34. There's an interesting thing that happens in chapter 34 that kind of makes this whole this whole. 32, 33, and 34 makes sense. God reveals himself 
uniquely to Moses. Moses wants to know. Moses goes to God and he says, we've been at this a while, God. Like, you know, like, I want to know you more. I want to know more about you. So God takes him and says, you can't look at my face. You can only look behind me. He has this moment. Moses has this moment where God reveals more of his character. And this is what we see in Exodus chapter 34, starting in verse 6, just verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we have this statement, this, this, this self-disclosure of God to Moses. And I love it because so many of us, I don't, know what you're, I don't know right now what your view of God is, what your vision of God is in this world. Is he angry all the time? Is he happy all the time? Is he indifferent? I think many people view it, the way we live our lives, God is rather indifferent He's, you know, he does his thing. I do my thing. Kind of, that's fine. If I need something, I'll ask. But I'm going to live my life. I don't know how you envision God right now. But let's listen to how he speaks about himself to Moses. Because what does he say to him when the Lord says, how will I say, tell who sent me? And he goes, I am sent you. Right, like that's language he gives there. But now look at how he, how he fills out more of his character to Moses in this moment. The Lord, the Lord... A God, what? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Are those the words that you would ascribe to God if you were just thinking about it? Right? Like if you said, What is God like? Merciful. Would you lead with merciful? God is revealing himself to Moses, even in the Old Testament, because sometimes I think we have this view of God where Old Testament God is wrath and New Testament God is grace. But how does he reveal himself in Exodus 34? Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's how he begins to speak about who he is for us. Who he is for us. keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Which goes back to what we saw, right? There's a consequence for guilt, but I'm forgiving. And I will meet the iniquity of fathers on future generations. We'll talk more about this in a podcast episode, but... This goes, I think, back to Exodus chapter 20 where he says the same thing, but there's language in Exodus 20 which I think helps Exodus 34 out because he goes, of those who hate me. That's the language that, that shows up earlier in the book of Exodus. Visiting the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Which means that God is gracious to all. He wants all to turn. He is this for us. And knowing God's character, knowing God's ways, and knowing God is, in a sense, it's the antidote for our idolatry. When you don't dwell on God, you dwell on you. 
when you don't think about God, when you don't consider him, when you don't discuss him, when you don't worship him, when you don't make it a way of life to engage with him, something else is going to grab that attention. Something else is going to take that space. We are, whatever you might want to say, you are, we are a people who were designed to worship. We were designed to worship. We praise all kinds of things. It's in us. I was thinking the other day, I probably read this in a book somewhere, but we were having a funny night as a family. Like, we were all making faces and trying to, like, make different kinds of faces. Like you do when you're a family and it's late at night. Like, give me surprise. And we all make a surprise face. Give me happy. Give me angry. And we're just cracking up at all these goofy faces that people are making. Just laughing. And I'm just like, Lord, why did you invent laughter? Why did you, I mean, I could have just been like, that is funny. That is funny. I could have just been looking and just stating things. that That's funny. I like that face. That is interesting. Cool one, Asher. Like, I could have done that. But instead, what am I doing? What are my kids doing? What is Courtney doing? We are cracking up. Why? Because there's just something in us that enjoys life. And we enjoy things. We enjoy people. And you might go, like me, I'm super introverted. You might go, well, yeah, but I mean, I'm not saying you had to enjoy People all the time, you can not enjoy them sometimes. You can be by yourself sometimes. But we want to praise and speak and declare all the time. Just scroll through somebody's social media feed. What are they doing? They're praising something. They're bragging about something. It might be about themselves. It might be about their kids. It might be about whatever. Something is being declared. We are a people who declare things. If we want to understand why idolatry is such an issue, we need to look at our hearts, go to the Lord, our solution. But then if, if we want to keep ourselves from veering as we walk with him, we must dwell on his character. We must dwell on his character. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Isn't that great? I mean, that's like, that should be everyone's favorite parenting verse. When your kids come to you and they go, are you mad at me? The Lord, the Lord, right? Like, and you just remember God's character and that's what you lead with. If the Lord is slow to anger, shouldn't I be slow to anger? Shouldn't I be gracious as I remember these things? Right? So even as we dwell on him, it changes how we live and how we act. And so he is ours. God's character. It is God's character that makes restoration from our idolatry possible. The Lord, the Lord. The Lord gets us out of the problems that we have created. He saves us from the messes that we have made. He died for the sins that we have created, that we have committed. He covers them over in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, I would say there's no one better to trust. And even today, if you have stumbled or faltered, I would encourage you even right now, even right now, to go before the Lord. Say, God, forgive me. And lean upon his character. 
even in those moments where we, the sinner, who feels like we shouldn't have, we shouldn't have done that. I, I, I know better, God. I know I shouldn't have followed that. I know I shouldn't have worshipped that. I know I shouldn't have looked at that. I know I shouldn't have laughed at that. I know these things. But what do you know more, hopefully? The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, that that can be what we pray to the Lord, even in those moments of our own sin. God, you're gracious and forgiving. You're slow to anger. So might I live rightly with you, knowing your character and your love for me, knowing the price that you paid for me, that I could live freely with you.